<clears throat> Thank you all so much. Um, hopefully, uh, yeah, this will encourage and inspire us to pray for them. Um, eat lots of Thai food so that we can be reminded often to pray uh, for Thailand and for uh, the Cho family. Thank you guys so much. Um, as we uh, transition to talk about another king, we're going to be moving towards uh, looking into what Palm Sunday is all about. Um, like many of y'all, uh, my, one of my favorite shows growing up was wrestling, WWF, right? Um, awesome. We all had our favorite wrestlers, Hulk Hogan or Superfly, Jimmy Snooker, or people like that. But there was a, another storyline that I really loved about uh, the WWF or, or different wrestling uh, shows. Uh, another storyline, and it was basically... Uh, this idea of the masked wrestler, the wrestler who came out um, wearing a mask. Usually the way that it happened, there was this tag team, uh, tag team, and they really were, were great wrestlers. Um, but one day, um, a girl gets in the way, and so these two end up hating each other. And so the tag team breaks apart, kind of like One Direction. And so everybody is sad. This guy's fighting off on his own. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this new wrestler comes out, and he's wearing a mask. And everyone's like, oh, my gosh, you know, his voice sounds like such and such, and his body looks like such and such, and his moves, the way that he moves, looks like such and such. And the whole time, we're trying to guess who is this masked marauder? Who is this guy hiding behind the mask? And, and you never know. The whole time, you're trying to figure out his identity. Until one day, this match is happening, and they're wrestling, and they're fighting, and, and this guy gets put in, like, a, a submission hold, or he gets knocked out, or he's in a sleeper hold, and, and he's basically incapacitated. And so the bad guy comes up, or the good guy comes up, and he says to the crowd, should I take off his mask? And they're like, yeah, take, up, take off his mask, take off his mask. And they're all anticipating it. And then he asks again, just in case he didn't hear, should I take off his mask? They're like, yeah, yeah. And he takes off his mask, and they're like, oh, my goodness, it's him. It's really him, and everybody is like so completely going crazy because they've unmasked yet. Kind of like when they find out Nacho Libre is really Ignacio, and they're like, oh my goodness, and this craziness ensues. <laughs> Palm Sunday, the day that we remember today being, is the day that the mask is taken off of who Jesus is. People are wondering, who is this guy? Is he a prophet? Is he a king? Is he God? Who is this person? And today is the day that the mask finally comes off and his identity is revealed. Palm Sunday, this account, is one of only a, a couple that are recorded in all four Gospels. And there's not really that much that happens, but it's so important. And his message is so deeply, deeply significant that we uh, need to understand its import. We're going to read from Luke chapter 19. All four, uh, all four Gospels talk about it, but we're going to read verses 28 uh, through 44. And uh, just see why it is uh, that this is so significant. This is God's word. It says, after Jesus said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him the Lord needs it. So those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. They were untying the colt. Its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. 
peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the teachers in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. Days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They'll dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They'll not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. This is God's word. You're a Roman. If you are a Roman in the Roman Empire, at the time when this triumphal entry is taking place, you kind of see the irony, and it's almost like a comical sight. There's a ragtag group of people, Matthew's Gospel says, the poor, the blind, the lame, the kids are making up these crowds of people who are shouting at their king, declaring his praises. You see Jesus coming in. In about 45 B.C., when Julius Caesar uh, won his civil war, he entered into Rome riding on a war horse, and it was harnessed by 40 elephants around him. And they declared, Hail Caesar, you are our king. And then you've got this upstart group of Jewish people. They're praising their king, and you've got this man riding on a donkey. It's not even his own, not a horse, a donkey, not a real big donkey, but a colt, a baby colt that nobody has ever ridden. Tim Keller, when he talks about this, says this is basically an animal that would be suited, more fit for a hobbit or a child than a king. So Jesus probably is, you know, it's like those, those kids' cars that you ride on, and you've got to push them yourself. His feet are dragging on the ground. It's a tiny little thing. He doesn't even have a saddle. The only saddle they have is people took off their jackets and put them on this, like, makeshift ghetto saddle on the donkey. And this ticker tape parade, and they don't even have a red carpet. They're throwing down their cloaks because that's kind of the way that they welcome their king. Because, you see, they didn't see their king very often in those days. This was a huge event for them. And as they sing, they're declaring the praises of their king. The king is weeping as he rides on this tiny colt of a donkey. Behold your triumphal entry, king of the Jews. It is laughable if you're a Roman citizen watching this. This is no threat to your kingdom. This is their king. What do you see? What do they see? That's what they saw. They didn't see much. But of all the things that they saw, it's interesting because in one of the Gospels, I think it's in, in Mark's Gospel, he talks about the triumphal entry just like we saw here. It says Jesus looked around. And then because it was late, he went back home to Bethany, or not home, but he went back to Bethany, and he went to sleep. What's the big deal about this? What's the big deal about Palm Sunday? What's the big deal about a triumphal entry? If he doesn't do anything, he doesn't like, do anything crazy, he just looks at people, and then he, he goes home and sleeps. I propose to you that of all the things that we see when we look at Jesus in this triumphal entry, it's more important maybe what we hear if we were there. If we were there, well, the things that we would have heard would be more significant than the things that we actually saw. Because three things that we would hear if we were there, we would hear the crowd, then we would hear the cries of Jesus, and then we would hear a call third. And I think each of them presents a message to us that we deeply 
desperately need to hear in 21st century America on Palm Sunday. The first thing as you listen to the crowd is you can be so close to Jesus and yet still be so far away. So Jesus comes in, into Jerusalem, riding on this colt, and the crowds are cheering him, they're applauding him. Have you ever been in a place where you are so close to someone or something, only to realize that you were really so far away from it? You remember in 2012, there was this great, um, just this great cultural movement that happened that was bigger than the Beatles, it was bigger than the Spice Girls, it was bigger than anything, that bigger than NSYNC, Backstreet Boys, it was called Linsanity. You remember this? Jeremy Lin, the darling, the poster child of Asian Americans. Jeremy Lin took over New York and took over, effectively, he took over the world. And there was a time right at the height of Linsanity's pinnacle, the All-Star Game happened here in Orlando. And you remember, he was not part of the All-Star Game, but he was part of some of the other events. And so there was a meet and greet with Jeremy Lin at the Florida Mall. Some of us were there. Uh, Olivia was one of Jeremy Lin's biggest fans. She loved him. He said, sweetheart, we got to go. We got to go. All right, we'll go. So we went, and we get there, and there's throngs of people, crowds of people. They're going crazy, waiting in anticipation for his entrance out of this, like, security exit. We're waiting. We're waiting. People are like, what time is it? And they're like, there he is. No, that wasn't him. Oh, the door's opening. Oh, and it's just a security guard. And Oh, that, no, just a janitor. They're waiting, waiting in great expectation for Jeremy Lin to enter. So we're sitting there, and all these people are pushing forward, and we get close to the door he's going to come out of, and the door's open, and from we're, we're kind of behind the door. From the side where people could see him, the, uh, see him first, people are clapping, they're cheering. Yeah, Jeremy, we love you, we love you, and all these things. And Jeremy Lin walks out, surrounded by these bodyguards, and Olive is jumping up and down, so excited. It's like, Jeremy, when he comes out, Jeremy Lin, hey, it's me. Jeremy, I love you. You're the greatest. I'm your number one fan. And... That was me. Actually, it wasn't her, but <laughs> he goes off. Like, yeah, we saw him. He was 10 feet away from us for one second, and then we start following him, and all the crowds are, yeah, Jeremy Lin, Lin Sanity. And they finally get him to this place where he sits down. He's taking pictures of people, signing autographs, and we're like, we're, there's no way we're going to wait in this line. So I took a picture with my iPhone 4 at the time and zoomed it up and got this great picture of Jeremy's head. And, and I posted it on Facebook, and I was like, I was so close to Linsanity. And people are like, oh my gosh, you really saw him. That's so cool. Like, like, like all these things. And, and one snarky comment came up and he said, yeah, good luck trying to get through the two, uh, two fences and the 15 security guards. You were real close, weren't you? I was like, are you kidding me? Just rejoice with those who are rejoicing. Come on, man. <laughs> but he was right. You ever been in a place where you were so close and yet so far away? It's kind of what the crowds were like here. Because Jesus is coming in, and they're praising him, and they're worshiping him. The things that they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is straight out of Psalm 118. One of the clearest prophetic psalms that talk about the coming of the king. And they're saying, blessed is our king, and they're worshiping, and they're bowing down, and they're celebrating him. They say, peace in heaven, glory in the highest. In, other, in all the other counts, they sing, Hosanna, which means save us. Save us. That's what everyone would cry out when they longed after centuries of oppression under different people ruling over them. And now it's the Roman Empire. They're just longing for a liberator, a liberator for their city. 
And they're crying out, save us, save us. And they believe that he's the one. And they're declaring his praises and they're celebrating him as he walks in on a colt. See, what they wanted after being oppressed for all these years, they want a a warrior king, not a savior king, a warrior king. He's going to come and he's going to, hey, listen, if he could feed thousands of people, he can overthrow Rome. That's no problem for him. If he can heal the sick and raise the dead and all kinds of things like that, then certainly he could release us from Rome. Can't he do that? And so they want a warrior king riding on his horse. But he comes in on a donkey. Because in those days, a king would ride a warrior horse, a war horse, only in times of war to declare his authority and his strength and his power. But he would ride in on a donkey in times of peace. And Jesus is saying, you've got the words right, but that's not the kind of king I came to be. I'm not going to be a kind of king who wins the kingship by killing them. I'm going to be the kind of king who wins by letting them kill me with all the authority I have. As he rides in on a colt, he's quoting from or fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9 from hundreds of years earlier that says, see, your king will come riding on a, on a donkey, the, the foal of a donkey, a colt, and he will come in peace to bring salvation. See, Jesus has taken the kid gloves off. He's taken the mask off, and he's saying, this is the clearest explanation of who I am. Up until this point in time, when people declared who he was, he quieted the crowds, only beginning to take the wraps off. And now, for the first time, he openly doesn't deflect the praise, but he receives it so much to the point where when the religious leaders say, quiet them, tell them to be quiet. Just check this out. If they were to be quiet, then the rocks would cry out. The first ever rock concert, bigger than the Rolling Stones, bigger than One Direction, than all of these groups would have been when, if the people were hushed. All of creation, even the dumb, someone is not smart, say, that guy's dumb. How dumb is he? He's dumb as a rock. The lowest, most brainless things in all of creation are able to recognize the glory of the king when he comes. And Jesus is saying, let me tell you once and for all, let me draw a line in the sand. This is who I am. You want to know who I am? I'm the king. I am the king. And two groups of people rise up. There's one who rise to praise him, and there's one who rise to kill him. The religious leaders, because they hate everything that Jesus is, either for political reasons, for religious reasons, for whatever reason, they don't like who Jesus is. And he draws a line and he says, this is who I am. Either you're for me, or you're against me. And the crowds of people that are worshiping him, that are praising him, waving their palm branches as a sign, centuries-old sign, that our liberation is here. They've got the right words. But they don't understand what it means. You can be so close to Jesus. You can be so close to the church. You can have the right words and yet be so far from him. Jesus says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And I think those of us who have been in the church the longest are the ones who are most prone to getting it wrong. To having the right words, to singing the right songs, to giving the right answers, to quoting the right scriptures, to being able to say in Sunday school class what everybody knows we ought to say, and yet have our hearts really be far from Jesus. 
those of us who study theology, who read the books, who read the famous authors, who, who go, to, go to Bible college and all of these things, who know everything that we ought to know, can really have hearts that are so far away from Jesus. And the longer we grow up in church, y'all, the easier it is for us to begin to realize what the right answer is. When I was a youth pastor here, I was driving a seventh grader home from church, and one uh, youth meeting we had had a guest speaker who um, was just, uh, wasn't at my invitation, but he came because someone else invited him, and he spoke, and, and I, I didn't really remember much of what he said. I didn't think it was the greatest talk, and I, maybe that was, a, that was a condition of my heart or whatever it was, and maybe it was his, his talk, but uh, we shouldn't be critiquing and criticizing people who come up here and share. That's not the point. But I asked this guy as I was driving him home, I said, hey, how was a, how was a youth meeting tonight? What did you think? And he thought about it for a second, or he was quiet for about five seconds, and he's like, man, it felt like everything he said, God was saying just for me. I was like, really? I, said, I didn't feel like God was saying all that to me. What, what, what were you hearing? And he's like, uh, I don't know, just all of it. All of it was good. See, we have this way of knowing what the right words are, right? Oh, he laid it thick that day. We have a way of knowing what the right thing to say is without really understanding what that means. To sing the songs and to do all these things without really knowing what it means. We can be so close to Jesus, so close to the church, but so far from Christ, so far from the cross. If you hear the crowds, that might be one of the first things that you hear because it's the same. Not, there wasn't a 100% overlap, but by and large, more people than not would agree that the same crowds that shouted to Jesus, crown him, Sunday, were the ones who said, kill him on Friday. Same ones who said, hail Jesus, hail the king. The same ones that said, nail the king on Friday. We're not so different, are we? Because you know how quickly Linsanity in 2012 went to, you got to cut him, he's no good in 2013. Our hearts can be so close to Jesus, and yet, or seem so close to Jesus. Our words can be so close to Jesus, while our hearts can be far away. We'll pick up on that a little bit more later. But the second thing that we would hear as we walk along the road, not only the crowds, but we would hear the cries. Verse uh, 41, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Jesus, we wouldn't just see the tears. The, the word for he wept, we saw him weeping t- uh, last week in, in Jesus raz- lazing, <laughs> raising Lazarus from the dead. He wept, right, when he was talking to Mary. But the weeping here is a, it's, it's a Uh, It's a convulsive kind of throbbing, sobbing, whole body involved in it, kind of a weeping that he's talking about. The same kind of weeping when Peter realized that he had denied Jesus three times and the rooster crowed and Peter wept bitterly. This is the weeping of Jesus. He's riding on his horse and he's weeping. As you look at him, this is a comical sight. Till we understand why is he weeping it's a there, there's a there's a specific turn on the road to uh, the city that jesus was riding his donkey on whereas you get to a certain point you have this vantage point where you're looking down and you can see the entire city of jerusalem 
Why as Jesus saw the city, does he saw the city, he wept over it. I mean, surely he knew that in five days, that would be the city outside of which he'd be crucified. If I knew that five days later in that place, I would be crucified, I'd be killed, I would certainly weep over looking at that city. But that's not what Jesus was weeping over. You, if you're the kind of person that takes notes, this is what that fill in the blank would say. Jesus weeps over our lostness. He's weeping over the lostness of the city, that the city, again, can be so close to him and yet so far from his heart that the city is lost and he knows it. He says the days will come. He's talking about its, its coming judgment. And if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Jesus is weeping over the sake of a city which has rejected the offer of peace. Uh, If you knew what would bring you peace literally means if you knew the offer of peace, if you knew the terms of peace that were being laid out for you, if only you knew that I'd come to bring peace and that the offer was there, but you had rejected it. What was Jesus seeing? Not only seeing the city for what it was in the year 30 or 33 or whatever A.D., He was looking ahead to the time, and every commentator will say this. He was looking ahead to the time when this would be fulfilled, when uh, enemies will build an embankment against you, when the Romans surrounded the city of Jerusalem and they hemmed in the people, just as it says, the people of Jerusalem, in order that they could not get out. People began starving, that they had to eat the leather off of their belts. This is what the historian Josephus says. And in the year A.D. 70, General, uh, General Titus, set siege to the city of Jerusalem, destroying its temple. And countless people died, and this was during the time of the Passover, when millions of people, he says up to three million people, the historian says, died in that city. And as Jesus looks over the lostness of that city, he weeps because he knows that the offer of peace was given to them, but they had rejected it. Can I ask you, when's the last time you wept? Not for yourself, because I feel sick, because I didn't get into a school, because whatever, my prom date didn't want to go with me after all. Not for yourself, not over a movie. When's the last time you wept over the lostness of a soul or over a city? or over a nation, or over a people. And this is hard for me because as I was preparing and as I was praying over this, I said, God, my heart hasn't wept for a while. I realize that like many in the church, I have a lot of fears, but I don't shed many tears. I was praying about somebody one night this week and they are going through some very hard stuff, very difficult stuff. And as I was praying, I asked myself, I said, God, I am saddened that I've gotten to a point where my heart, even though it may seem stirred, I'm not moved to tears over the brokenness of this person. I said, Lord, why is this? Why is this? That you would break my heart for what breaks yours. Open up my eyes to things that I don't see right now. 
Why is it that I'm not weeping over the lostness and of the brokenness of the people that I have been called to love? And as I prayed that, and this is not how it always happens, but as I prayed that, God took me back to a time when this person who's struggling with all kinds of uh, things in their lives, God took me back to the place where I first met that person when they were just a young, middle person. Shy, scared, afraid, longing to be loved. And what God said into my heart that night as I was praying, he said, that person is still a shy, scared, hurting child, wanting to be loved in a bigger body. The last time you wept over the lostness of your friends, your family members. I think part of the reason why we don't is because we look at these people who are going through, we look at people like Nat with her lesbian lover. Look at her broken and say, you know what? She deserves that. But she put that on herself. The reason why he's in so much pain is because he made the wrong choices. The reason why I, did, I told him 15 times he shouldn't do that, but he's still living that way. And because we're busy judging, we don't have the time to really love and weep over them. Jesus didn't judge them. He didn't say, oh, you know what, that city, they're going to kill me. You know what, that city, they're going to reject me. That's why. That's why that's going to happen 40 years down. He didn't say that. He saw their brokenness. He saw their pain. He saw their lostness, and it caused him to weep, forgetting about whatever their motivation for doing the things that they, he didn't think about. He just wept because he was broken over their lostness. He didn't weep for himself. He didn't weep that they're rejecting me. He's weeping for them. Don't cry for me, Argentina. Don't cry for me, Jerusalem. He's crying for them. And he would later say that. Don't weep for me, daughters of Jerusalem. Weep for yourselves and for your city. Did you know that Jesus weeps for your city? He weeps for Bangkok. He weeps for Orlando. He weeps over Cairo and he weeps over Winter Garden. And every time you go and settle for lesser lovers and drink from those wells, he weeps. Every time you run from him into the arms of lesser thrills, he weeps. Every time those people that you and I judge so quickly try to find hope and significance in a relationship at the bottom of a, of, a, of a bottle of alcohol at wherever it is, he weeps for them too. He's been weeping since. He's been weeping ever since. Jesus weeps over our lostness. The last thing that we see, you would hear, is you would hear a, you would hear a call, you would hear a choice. And Jesus says, you cannot sit on the fence forever. Can't sit on the fence forever. He has effectively said, either you're for me or you're against me. There's no middle ground. And we're sitting on the, some of us, man, we've been here for 15 years, going in and out of church, going in and out of the world, and we're sitting on the fence. 
because that's what our friends are doing, because we don't want to be too hallelujah, because we don't want to lose out on the blessing of God, but at the same time, we don't want to go all in because people are going to think we're weird. And we're sitting on the fence. Some of us have been through 50 weeks, 40 weeks of seeing it's all about Jesus. The last 12 weeks, seeing how amazing, how incredible Jesus is. And he's saying, will you make a choice? How long are you going to waver between two opinions is what the prophet Elijah says. Either you're for me or you're against me. And Jesus draws a line and he says, will you take a stand? You see, that's not popular in our culture. Our culture has, has made it very easy for us not to choose anything. But after we, uh, we break out of here, we go to Bible studies, you can go to eat a firehouse subs, and you're going to get this cup that they give you. And they're going to give you this, this giant cup, and they're going to take you to a machine, and you'll be like, I don't know if I want Coke or Sprite. You don't have to, because you can choose and mix this mash of a thousand different drink options. You can put cherry, vanilla, chocolate, whatever thing uh, in, your, in your drink, and you can choose any of 15 different kinds of drinks, mix them together, whatever you want. This is heaven for people who love things like that, but it is the opposite for people who can't make a decision. Oh, man, it's torn. What am I going to do? This is a generation to a generation that cannot make a, a choice. The sampler platter on the menu is the greatest gift to us. I want them all. I want everything. To people who go to the chicken wing store and say, I don't know if I want hot wings or garlic wings or honey wings. I don't know what I want. You can have hot honey garlic, but make sure you do it at Wings of Winter Gardens, the only place to get them. <laughs> this is what the American dream says to us, okay? Yeah, you have your Sunday. Be a good Christian on Sunday. The rest of the week, you do whatever you want to do. Make the most of it. Have a family. Have kids. Have a big house. Do it all. You can have everything. You can have everything. You can have it all. But Jesus says, you can't. No one can serve two masters. You either love the one, hate the other. You can't choose. You can't have both ways. People are sitting on the fence. Jesus say, here is the clearest expression of who I am, the clearest indication of my identity. I am the king, and either you will bow to me, you will lay down your arms of rebellion, you will acknowledge defeat, and you'll surrender to me and follow me on the road to Calvary, or you'll reject me. Because it's not all the way, if it's not all the way, then there's no such thing as part way. That's what Jesus is saying makes it crystal clear. He lays out these options before us. Can't sit on the fence forever. Because the time is coming. The time is coming when judgment is going to come. That's what Jesus is saying. Time is coming when it's going to be too late. One of my um, friends had a, a really great restaurant uh, here in in town, and uh, whenever uh, he was here, we would take it. He would take uh, Olivia and me to go eat there. We loved eating there. All you can eat meat, amazing. If we were to go there on our own, it would be easily you know fifty dollars a person with all the tax and stuff included. But we loved going with him. And he moved out of town, and so he gave us these these vouchers, two vouchers at any time you want, complimentary meal, whatever you want. And he signed his name on the back and said, take you know treat them to whatever they want. So excited. So it was in my wallet, proudly displayed. Anyone who would want to see, oh, yeah, here's my coupon. 
Olive and I were like, hey, when should we go? We're like, we got to save it for the perfect occasion, best occasion. How about, let's go for our anniversary. Well, no, it's not our fourth. Fourth is a weird number. Maybe our fifth anniversary. That'd be great. Yeah. Not for my birthday. No, no, I don't want you to spoil me on my birthday. Maybe for your birthday. Maybe for Valentine's Day. We'll wait for the right occasion. Well, we got to get a babysitter. Uh, well, not today. Uh, we're just a little bit too tired. Let's just carry out from Papa John's or something like that. And we waited and we waited. And one time we drove by that restaurant. We realized that it was no longer there. <laughs> like, what happened? <laughs> but wait, there's more. They had another location, though. Ha ha. See, don't laugh at me yet. They had another location. So we went to the other location. Same name, same decor, same everything. We've got these uh, coupons here from the other location, but same everything. Like, I'm sorry, we cannot take that. Why not? He's got his autograph. He was the owner, all that stuff. I'm sorry. We're a completely different brand. What? Same name, same everything. I'm sorry, we can't take it. But, but, sorry, it's too late. Too late. Should have used it when they were still open. Time is coming. Time is coming. When it will be too late. We think sometimes we're invincible, that we've got all the time in the world to live it up and to play it up and to do all these things that if something happens, we can always just go to God then. I, I fear, I fear that so many people are trying to hedge their bets and will get to that point when before they realize it, they're standing before God on judgment day. Says, why should I let you into heaven? I said the right words. I went to this mission trip. I said these things. I gave money to these people. I, Jesus, I had the right answers, didn't I? Can't sit on the fence forever. But Jesus is saying, I am your king. Will you surrender to me? That I'm the king. Will you surrender to me? The offer, the terms of peace have been laid out. I've paid everything. I've paid everything. One day, can I tell you what's going to happen one day? Revelation chapter 7, I'll tell you part of what's going to happen. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. John, who saw a vision of the apocalypse, the end times, as he looks up in heaven at the vision he sees in verse 9, says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Jesus walks in the triumphal entry during Passover time when a lamb would be slain. A perfect, pure, spotless lamb would be slain. And he's saying, if you believe, if you believe, then you need to understand that salvation is found in no other. You can't earn it. You can't work your way to it. You've got to get off the fence. You've got to bow your knee before the King of Kings, before whom one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. That Jesus Christ is Lord. They will declare the wonder and the praises of God along with the rocks and with all of creation. Every knee will bow. But he's saying the joy, the joy of those around the throne are not going to be those who forcibly are pushed 
to bow and to confess the reality that they will, that will be crystal clear in that time. But it's for those who gladly, willingly got off the fence in this lifetime. And the ones who waved their palm branches of liberation saying, we are free. We are the free. We've been set free because of the blood of the Lamb. It says around that throne will be people from every tribe and nation and people and language. There will be people from Thailand and Lord willing people like Nat will be there. There will be people from Egypt, people to whom Kenny and Peter and Cindy and these folks minister to. There will be people like that around the throne. There will be people from North Korea who bow and declare salvation belongs to our God. There will be people from every corner of creation who will be there and they will declare the wonder and the glory of God. But the only ones who remain in that place to celebrate in the glory of the Lamb will be the ones who in this life decided that I can't stay on the fence forever. I can't worship God on Sunday and then deny Him Monday through Saturday. I can't give my all to Him on Sunday only to forget what He says and do the things that I want to do. He says, if you love me, then you will do what I commanded you. Jesus died on the cross to take the failures of humanity, yours and mine included, upon himself. He says, this, there could be no clearer demonstration of who I am. No clearer demonstration. I don't want our hearts to become hardened to the point where we hear this message and we can't hear it anymore because we've gone so far into the things of this life. Think this is who I am. For the many who are sitting on the fence, will you choose him? Will you choose him? Will you walk with him? The choice is up to us. Let's pray. Guys, can we pray for a sec? And especially for those of us, you feel like, yeah, God, I've been sitting on the fence. You know this because you've heard it often. We don't know when the expiration date on our lives is going to be. We don't know when God is going to call us to stand before our maker. To either take the judgment for ourselves or to allow the judgment to fall on Christ because of the choice that we made on earth. saying, listen, if you're on the fence and you can't stay there forever, you make a choice. You make a choice. Let's pray. Maybe for some of us in here, we need to make that choice today. This is what Palm Sunday is about. Lord Jesus, I need you. In a, in a minute, I can invite and lead us through a a prayer of confession that helps us to see our need for Jesus. Let's just respond to God on our own right now. Lord, I need you. I need you. I'm going to see you, humble king. You're the king, but you came to serve, to love, to die. Show me how much you love me. Just respond for a minute right now and then uh,
like just continue to pray if there's um, you know if you just feel like today God is calling me to get off the fence he's telling me to put my trust in him he's telling me to let go it doesn't matter how young you are it doesn't matter how old you are it doesn't matter how much good you've done it doesn't matter how much bad you've done Jesus Christ died on the cross in order that we could know that it's by grace, by unconditional love that we can know him. Because of what he's done, not because of what we've done. Not Because of what he's done, we're not disqualified by what we've done. If there's anyone in here who just feels like, you know, that's, that's me. You don't have to make a big show of it, but as you pray, you can just lift your hand up in the air and say, I want to get off the fence today. I want to choose Jesus. You can just raise your hand from where you are. We're not going to call you out or anything, but I just want to lead us in a prayer that helps us to really understand. Thank you. Thank you, sister. I see you there. A couple folks here. You can put your hands down. There's some folks here who are acknowledging their need for Jesus follow him. A couple of our young folks here. Anyone else just, yeah, I need Jesus in my life. Together, I'm, we're going to pray, and this is something that my children have been, even last night, they've been wanting to pray this prayer. They don't, I don't know that they understand it fully, especially my little one, but they always repeat after me, and you don't have to repeat, but just in your heart, just acknowledge these things to be true. Lord Jesus, I've seen today and I've seen through my life who you are, that you are the true king, that you're not the king in the ways of this world who lords it over people and demands allegiance, but you're the one who commands allegiance because of a disarming kind of a love, because you loved me to the point of dying for me. You died because I should have died. You died because I was sinful. You died because I messed up and I deserve to be punished. I deserve to die eternally. But in love and because of mercy, you came to this world. And God died for me. I believe that you did that to forgive me of my sins. Would you come into my life, not only to save me, but to lead me and to be my king. Help me to be who you want me to be. I love you, Jesus, because you've loved me first. So, Father, for all those who have prayed that prayer, Lord, would you fill them with a confidence in you. Remind them of the promises of God, that they would stand firm on them and stand firm in you, that you would hold on to them, that they would cling to you. Help us to live under your lordship, under your kingship. May we know your love for us. We thank you so much. We remember your love for us. We remember your love for the nations. We remember Thailand. We remember the children. We remember your faithful love in their lives. We pray that your rule and reign would be made known in Thailand as it is in heaven. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray.